everybody. Welcome back. Uh, not unlike Foxatani Phil, we've crawled out of our hole and we're back with uh, the Backcast Podcast, the Hot Stove Edition. I'm joined today with uh, Richard Perry, uh, fellow board member and uh, my co-host for the Hot Stove series, and our friend Jim Wren uh, from the U.S. Forest Service. Hi, everybody. Yeah, um, Jim, I, you know, and, and for folks that have listened to us before, it's this is just a couple of guys, you know, sitting around having a chit-chat, so uh, not not terribly formal. Uh, That's my kind of venue. Right on. <laughs> but for our, for our listeners, um, maybe you could take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, kind of your background, how you got into what you do, and... Uh, got to have one of the coolest jobs in the north woods so <laughs> well uh like i said i'm jim wren and i work for the huron menistee national forest i'm the heritage program manager and forest archaeologist and uh i do have what i consider to be the coolest job in the woods i mean i get to run around and look for old stuff and uh, i spend a lot of time doing that so i got started in our i grew up in pennsylvania and uh in north central pennsylvania in a little town called muncie along the susquehanna river on the west branch and uh, that part of the world was, it's a very, much much like northern Michigan, it's really wrapped in early American history. And, you know, so we grew up with stories of, you know, the French and Indian War and the Indians and every cornfield when they plowed it was, you know, we'd go find arrowheads in the cornfield and on, on the family farm. So I grew up kind of... <laughs> Driveway alarm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up around, do we want to start over? You just want to keep rolling. No, so, you're fine. But I, you know, I grew up with that, that experience. It was the adventure. I mean, on our family farm, we had a bonafide, on the old early, early survey records, it's marked, we always called it the Indian Trail. And it is a bonafide Indian Trail from the river. So there was a big archaeological site on the river on the family farm and runs at the top of the hill that we own. Awesome. And so we were all over that. So I guess officially my start... You know, we every every Sunday we used to go to my great grandmother's house when I was a kid. You know, we go to my grandparents' house and have dinner, and then we'd end up at my great grandmother's house. And and if it was during the spring plow or something, we'd go arrowhead hunting in the cornfield. And that was a family thing; we'd always done that. So I was probably I was old enough to remember I remember the conversation, and I don't know how old I was, but my grandfather we had been out there, and Chris as a kid, I'd pick up every rock I found. Is this something? Is this something? Is this something? And it was always a rock. It was a oh, rock, sure. a rock. But my dad, my grandfather, boy, they could, you know, pick, find stuff. You know, you get an eye for stuff. So I remember sitting there with my grandfather and my dad and all that, and they had found a, a big spearhead laying there in a the cornfield. And uh, he had talked about, hey, you know, look at this, Jimmy. And, and you know, did you ever wonder who this guy was? I mean, we're the first people to see this, you know, in a thousand years or however old it was since the guy who made it, exactly. for whatever reason, left it here. And did you ever wonder about what that guy's day was. What was he thinking about? What was he doing? And that whole, as a little kid, that whole idea was, what what was his day like? And that's pretty much been... What an inspiring question. Yeah, and that's been the going theme for my career. It's like, well, what's this guy's day about? And really, when you look at archaeology as a profession, I mean, really, what we're studying is human behavior as it adapts to that ever-changing environment. So really, it is. What's this guy's day about? What's he doing to get through the day? What's he thinking about? How is he making the decisions he's making? And uh, I never thought as a little kid 
bopping around running ridges and trout streams of Pennsylvania that I would turn this into a career. And I remember when I went to college, my dad's like, well, can you make a living doing that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And he's, he says, like, I can't believe you make a living doing that. And I'm like, yes, yeah, not too bad. So, you know, I got, that's how I really got my start. And I mean, I mean it's just always, it's, it's been a reward. It, it plays to the things I've always been interested in. I mean, this love of history, this love of the past, of being outside. You know, I, I don't think I would, this time of year in the Forest Service is tough because there's not a whole lot of archaeology in January, February around here. <laughs> And uh, I'm a real outdoor kid. So as much as I love the wintertime, you know, career-wise, I'm like, oh, geez, I just kind of sit around. There's only so many articles you can read to you're like, okay, got to get back out go. there. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to do this. So, you know, I spent a lot of time outside viewing different things, and it kind of played into all my different interests. And, I mean, I had a pretty colorful childhood. I was exposed to a lot of different things because my grandfather was like, and my dad were both really interested in this type of stuff. So as a little boy, I saw... And handled, you know, 13,000-year-old Clovis points as a little boy. I mean, I know guys my age, professionals, have not held as much stuff as I've got to get my, you know, fingers on. And I knew about flintlock rivals and tomahawks and, and canoes and all this stuff that was, you know, played into this career. And um, it's been really rewarding. It's taken me from rural Pennsylvania, north-central Pennsylvania, to West Texas and New Mexico, all the way back to Michigan, and oh, wow. all parts in between. And it's been, you know, and I get the, the greatest part about the job is you get to see the parts of the world that not a lot of other people get to see. Because we get to work, we work rather remotely when we're doing different projects. Oh, yeah. And uh, primarily, it's always been survey work uh, for different, either as a contractor or as a federal employee, but really we're surveying for the same reasons to identify what resources are out there, archaeological sites, and whether or not they are significant. Are they important? Are they intact? Can they give us new information or fill in answers to questions that we don't, mm -hmm. you know, that we, we've asked but never get a complete set? And uh, most of the time it's, you know, there could be, it happens because there's, you know, regulatory laws that protect these, like, like threatened and endangered species like our Kirtless Warbler or oh, okay. the watershed, you know, clean water access stuff. So they consider this a resource. So whether it was the military on Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, or oil field stuff in southeast New Mexico or mining stuff in western New Mexico, uh, it's always about identifying what resources need to be protected and are they important enough that we need to provide you know make extra boundary. yeah may take the extra step to you know put measures in place to, to keep them safe um so you get way you know way out there sometimes you can see places that like i like say when you come up upon some of these sites you're the first person to see that since whoever made that assemblage left it there and out in the west it can be fifteen thousand years old you know, I mean, there's that's that's then that's the first time it's been exposed in fifteen thousand years, and there you're looking at it for the first time, or it's an Apache site, and it might be only you know two hundred years old, but you're the first guy to stand there in an Apache site because the Apaches really made an effort to hide their stuff. Right. Um, and even here in in Michigan, I mean, when you stumble upon these things, you're the first person in a very long time to you know, and you always wonder, well, what's the whole backstory to get to this point in time? And it's fascinating how so much has changed, but so much has stayed the same. You know, I mean, we're still people no matter what era, but it's a good, it's good. I enjoy it. So, 
your comment about the Southwest fascinates me. I was, um, I don't know that area of the country all that much, but just from reading, it just seems like it would be, how do I wish, uh, architecturally rich. <laughs> they are target-rich environment, perhaps. It is. I mean, no, it is. And what, you know, but it is just as diverse and rich as our area here in Michigan. Okay. The biggest difference is you can walk out in the desert in West Texas or in the Southwest, in the greater Southwest, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, even into the, you know, Utah and places like that. And because of, you know, environmental processes, it's exposed. It's on the surface. You can see it there. Uh, some of it's been exposed in the past hundred years because of you know climate change and mining and ranching and everything else has it's destabilized the surface and it's blown clear. Uh, some of it's that, that's where it's always been. It's been laying just like that for thousands of years, but you can see it. So you're left with this idea that there's just just so much more stuff in the American West than there is here. But the difference is it's exposed and here it's buried. You know, beneath you know leaves and sand. Some the the oldest stuff we had. Well, when you start getting into the prehistory of northern Michigan, that woodland period, you know, and earlier, you know, you're you're a good 18 inches into the ground. So it's not like you can walk across the surface and say, oh. And when you do find an arrowhead close to the surface in this part of the world or something like that, it's because that area has been impacted by more recent activity and it's eroded away. And there's some great historic photographs from Michigan that shows that. And you can see the stumps and the root balls hanging down. Because that much how much soil has eroded once the timbering oh, wow. was done. So. so so we do find arrowheads up here. The it, You just got to look a little harder? Or? Right. And well, it's, it's not a matter of looking harder. It's looking in the right spot. Well, you know, thank you. And, okay. And, so. uh, and, and there's a whole lot of factors that go into that. I mean, people have been living in northern Michigan... Oh, for all of 13,000 years and maybe a little bit more. I mean, by 13,800 years ago, the ice, the big ice age, glacial ice, was really right about where the straits are now. Mackinac City was okay. still under ice. And what we know in archaeology, what we see is that we used to think, oh, it would probably be forever till people could move in after the ice retreated, but it was really within a couple hundred years. You know, that ice sheet moves back. And the landscape just rebounds. I mean, plants start to grow. And once the plants start to grow, the animals move in. Mm -hmm. And we were all hunter-gatherers, so we were following these animals. So people have been living here for, you know, 13,000 years. So it's everywhere. But it changes where those locations are at over time because the landscape changes so dramatically. I mean, water tables rise, water table falls. Land rebounds from the ice, you know, erosion happens, river courses change. I mean, you can look at an aerial map of the Asable and see that it's moved itself back and forth across the valley sure. over thousands of years. Um, so it's always a matter of knowing where to look. You know? Well, so. coming up as a kid in Indiana, I grew up in central Indiana. So yes. in the fall, after the guys had, har you know, harvest until uh, you'd hit the cornfields and you'd Right, same you know, in Pennsylvania. Kick, yeah. kick it up for uh, arrowheads and such. And so I'm wondering, you know, we're pretty sandy here. Um, and this is definitely new. Right. You know, we've, we've only lived up here for three years. So it's me getting used to the soil content here versus hard clay. Is the farmland 
like over by Mayo more conducive to to that than our soil here or well is there I've, another layer with no and we, where people were well i've often wondered that too because like over towards Mayo and then down and towards glenny and especially down towards you know rose city west branch you know up the rifle river it's more more agriculture more you know more clay-based soils mm-hmm. um when i look at the archae- the prehistoric archaeology that we find across the forest i mean most of it's right along the first terrace above the river you know, because the rivers rivers are highways. People are traveling, sure. and um, they were easy travel from point A to point B. You know, I mean, if you look at our part of where you could come up Lake Huron all the way to the Asable up to Grayling, and then you could catch Portage Creek and hit the Manistee, and boom, you're all the way down to Lake Michigan. Or you could go southeast and wherever you want to go. Um, but it's all sand, and I've often wondered the same thing because I, I hear people talk about, well, I was over here in this field and we found this, and I don't know if that's just because people were everywhere. Um, we do have, they're not myths or legends. I mean, we do know that, you know, the early Native, Amer- Native Americans were practicing agriculture to varying degrees. Um, we have the records. We see it, you know, historically people talk about, you know, corn, squash, mm-hmm. beans, it's three sure. sisters. What I see, I don't ever get the impression when I look at the archaeology of northern Michigan that prior to contact period there was while there was it was more horticulture than agriculture we're going to grow some stuff but we're not banking on that it's it's, it's a supplement, supplement not a staple um you see that in a lot of places you know I mean even in you know the southwest you know we always think of the desert you know Puebloans they're, they're farmers well that's true depending on where you're at, but there was a lot of people that were more horticulture than agriculture because you just couldn't depend on the weather and the environment to cooperate with a successful harvest. And up here, we know we have a pretty short growth. Well, look at last year. I mean, we got that frost in June. So yeah. if you started planting in April or May, whenever it was well, suitable plant, <laughs> yeah, you would have got zapped. Now, if you were banking on that, and, you know, your subsistence level, you got to eat this. Well, that's, that's, that's bad news. So I think that people, you know, and our soils up here don't really lend themselves well to agriculture. They're really nutritious. They just don't hold water. So I'm sure that, you know, you look at those clay-based soil where the Amish are farming now, and as you get toward mm-hmm. Westbrook, I'm, I would, I would anticipate that there should be more of that, but you don't ever hear about it. And I mean, people, feel, you know, being there, everybody's got, when I get out in a crowd or sitting in a pub somewhere, everybody's got to tell me about what they found. And I never get those stories here that I do. I mean, when I was in the Southwest, I mean, if they found out, you, you always heard stories of what people were finding. Or the best way is always like, well, I had this uncle and he used to ride for this ranch and he was up some canyon and he found a cave and in that cave was a dead conquistador and a pile of gold. But he could never wait, find his way back. I'm like, well, what type of a cowboy is he that he can't find right. his way back? <laughs> you know? So, so we hear these stories, but I don't hear those stories around mm-hmm. here. I do hear stories coming out of Hubbard Lake. Hubbard Lake in that area, it was a very rich area. There must have been a lot of people living there for a very long time because it goes all the way back thousands of years to the old copper culture and all up here with what comes out of that area. But it's always private land too. No one ever finds cool stuff on my property. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, what I wouldn't give to have those, some of those stuff. Well, do, do you get invited into people's property to assess and survey? I get calls every once in a while for not so much to survey because 
you know, it's their private land. But I do get calls sometimes and people bring things by and show me what, what they're finding or ask questions about what they've been finding, you know, what they have or what they inherited from somebody and all that. Um, and I'm, I'm, and I love that when people do it because it gives me an idea of what else is out there. You know, we don't, the na- you know, the nature of things with the, with the Forest Service at a federal level, you know, we're more caretakers than I can really dig, really go dig into stuff. Okay. Um, I don't have the the manpower, or really, you know, when you open up an archaeological site, you know, it's like Pandora's box. Once you get it open, you can't put it back. So we have very limited capabilities to responsibly investigate a site. So I, you know, I know a lot because I've done a lot over the years, but we don't tinker too deeply on our sites because we, what do we do with it once we got it, and we don't have it. So, so I'm always glad to see what everybody else is finding. Because it gives me an idea. I'm like, well, I know, I know what I have here. Oh, and you also have this over here, and this, and you start to see that bigger picture Just of make a better picture. Yeah. Yes, a bigger picture of what's going on across the region. And it, I mean, there's a lot. This was a a very busy place throughout time. I mean, we always get this idea that it was just vastless tracts of woodland and quiet and peaceful and serene. But people were, you know, in order to survive the way they did, they were back and forth and very in tune with things and had the ability to get to where they needed to be to maximize whatever was in season at that time. So it was a busy spot for thousands of years, you know. Well, you know, throughout the course of our involvement with the museum, you know, we we hear a lot about uh, Shamnagan and, you know, his pure class, if you will. And, you know, it was, you hear stories of tough winters and, you know, desperate times, but, to your point, it goes way back beyond that. <laughs> and, well, and this area just seems like, as you said, a natural corridor. It was, and it was a very resource-rich area. There, and yes. People knew how to do it. When I look at when I look at you know going from, you know, historic contact, you know, let's say eighteen thirty-seven into the you know the eighteen hundreds Native America, all the way back to sixteen hundreds Native America. There's a big change in how people going from a subsistence-based economy. We need to do this to survive, so we're going to go hunt the deer we need to eat, take the furs we need for whatever we're making, you know. And it's at, at a need. We don't, you know, we we owe, you know. So it's not an overabundance compared to after contact period. It becomes a commercial, you know. We're we're doing stuff. That we're buying and selling. It's supply and demand. So in the past, you know, 1491. I need a beaver hat. Well, I go out and whack a beaver and I make a beaver hat. So, you know, 1492, well, I want that copper kettle. That's going to be 14 beavers. Well, I need to go get 14 beavers. Mm-hmm. It just totally changed the how people were living. So because of that big shift in the economy, you start seeing people have hard winters because they weren't thinking subsistence anymore. You know, it gets too much, you know, oh man, I can, I got this I can depend on. I can on. go to the general store, or I can right. go see and, this guy. You know, part of, you know, with the French and Indian War and Pontiac's Rebellion in the 17, 1763, was kind of based on this, you know, acknowledgement that we went from a subsistence society, you know, economy with Native America, to a commercial supply and demand society. And... The big uprising in that was, hey, we were with the French, and we traded pretty equitably. You know, things were fair. And all of a sudden, Amherst comes in with the British and says, hey, 
The last, the next thing, we're first thing we're going to quit doing is giving our potential enemies guns, you know. <laughs> and in Native America's like, whoa, 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 wait. You guys created this whole scenario that in order for us to survive, we need to hump this fur to bring to you to get the supplies we need to feed our kids and clothe ourselves and do this stuff. And all of a sudden, you're not going to give us the tools we need to go do this? Well, hey, you know, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to burn all your forts down. <laughs> you know? so, and it was successful to a degree because Amherst was removed you know, after the end, at the end of that. But it was, but to me... Sure, that's exactly what we think of that. Exactly. <laughs> and so it was really that, but it, it demonstrates what I'm saying is, you know, what I'm trying to, you know, that as people became less in tune with, you know, what they had been doing for 50,000 years and switched to this new economy, you know, supply and demand. Well, if the supply's not there, we got a problem. And we see that time and again. And even into you get to the, you know, out west with... You know, we had millions and millions of buffalo, but there's a lot of, you know, that was fine. But the historic period where we start running railroads and wagon trains, it broke up the herds and the migrations failed. And there's a lot of historic accounts of hungry Indians when you got 10 million buffalo out there. And because it had disrupted all that. Just put them in the wrong brake lines. Right. <laughs> and so as things changed dramatically. So I've often, you know, so going back in time, and, this is, and even today, northern Michigan is a resource-rich environment. And if you know what's out there, and you you know, and you're not picky, you know, you can really survive well. You, you know, season in, season out. And uh, I mean, we're really picky today. We turn our nose up things that our ancestors didn't even hesitate to. Sure. Like we eat, eat that, we eat that twice. You know, but now, so, um, and again, as we see, especially what we've seen in the past year, that supply and demand can really get you. I mean. You know, our ancestors never worried about toilet paper. <laughs> so, I don't want to but, talk about that. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. What, um, from from your explorations, I'll, I'll circle back to that a little bit about um, you know the arrowheads or whatever, as it involves you and. You know, cool things you've experienced either here or elsewhere. Any significant finds? I mean, you, you mentioned a Clovis had that. I think is a big wish list item for. I've people that in that. I've had have a, a passion yeah. in that area. I've had a. I have been very blessed to get in some really cool stuff over the years, um, and in a lot of different places. Out west, the the American Southwest is really like I said because everything's exposed you know, over years, and, and so you get to see things, and it just surprises you, because I can be out there, I, my job today was to go out and look at this, you know, human archaeological site, but along the way I found, you know, mammoth remains, or I was over here looking at this, and here's chunks of dinosaur bone, and, and 140 million year old petrified tree, um, so there was always, the, so it was neat stuff like that, because I, I mean, and out west as an archaeologist, you, you learn to kind of cover all your bases, because you will find fossil remains. You find everything from the earliest Native American all the way up to Pancho Villa stuff. And uh, so you get that diverse. But cool stuff, some of it's been the things themselves, but usually it's a lot of it's the location. I mean, the American Southwest is always known for all this rock art, the pictographs, the painted ones, and mm -hmm. the petroglyphs, the carved ones. And I've been up, you know, elk hunting or mule deer hunting or working or whatever and been into places and you find these little bit of an overhang and in there there's, you know, paintings on the wall and you know i'm a hunter and a fisherman and outdoorsman so the ones that always really strike a tone with me are the ones that always show hunting 
-hmm. And one I remember was from southeast New Mexico in the Guadalupe Mountains there. And it was, it depicted it, they were either elk or deer hunting because it was, it had big antlers on it and there's spears and guys and all this stuff. But one of them had stuck their hand on the wall and kind of did that sprayed around it. So it was just his negative handprint up there. Oh, wow. And in my mind, you know, I put my, you know, he makes the hair stand up in my arms right now. But, you know, put your put hand your up hand in that, and I'm like, oh, that's big medicine, guys. <laughs> I'm going to have a successful hunt this year. I'd be wondering where he got the Rust-Oleum. <laughs> <laughs> but so those are always neat. Um, you know, you, you'd be out in different, you, you get a really sense of, of, of people by what they leave behind. So I've been on old, old ranching sites that were just kind of, you know, you could tell that, well, he must have been married because his cabin, his shack's a whole lot nicer. Took the time to wallpaper, little, you know, the yeah. inside. There's flowers planted. And you're like, well, this was clearly a bachelor based on the, the broken bottles and everything else laying around. Um, but it just always, like I said, it always, when I sit there and think about it, it's always places that they were just beautiful places. You know, things that were just kind of an anomaly. You'd be out, I mean, really, literally in the middle of nowhere. Here we think we're off and we're isolated. But, you know, around here you walk a mile in any direction, you hit a road. And there are spots I've been in New Mexico, you walk a mile and you're going to walk a lot more miles to hit anything. You walk else. another one. Yeah, you're out there, you're, you're a ways, you know. And uh, you find just a, not a, just a piece of pottery. Just a piece of pottery out there in the middle of nowhere, and you're like, "Well, where's the rest of it? What's this one piece doing? Why did this one little bubble up? There's nothing else, and there's nothing else for miles around you. And things like that would get you, you know, get you thinking about different things. And you know, the rock art was always, like I said, I mean, you know, you sometimes like, oh, that's got to be hunting. But then, and and some things we know because the Puebloans today could say, yeah, this is related to this. But then there's a lot of stuff. You almost feel that you can get it if you just had the first word. Mm -hmm. And and so you see, you know, left pondering on that. Fossil remains are always impressive. I mean, you know, every I always buddy of mine's paleontologist, and he talks about paleontology being the gateway science because every kid starts <laughs> off being into dinosaurs. So even as a as a as a you know grown gateway up, science. yeah, the gateway That's science beautiful. made me laugh. That the is gateway beautiful. science, get your fix, <laughs> you know. And of course, I got kids and they're into dinosaurs. So being out there and you find. Fossil remains, or you know, like you know, part of a mammoth, those big molars and all that. Sure. I mean, that really always geeked me out because, you know, you start thinking about. Here I'm sitting in southeast New Mexico, and I can see a pump jack over here and cattle over there. But right here at my feet is remains of a twenty-two thousand pound elephant, and that, that was always neat. Uh, and the characters you meet when you're out in the field, boy, there's always. Some of them are right out of Louis L'Amour. Some of them are right out of Jerry Springer. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so, it's been exciting. So it's always, you know, I've found Pueblos. I've found, you know, Paleo-Indian sites and all parts in between. I guess it's all kind of, it's always been special. In archaeology, you learn to love all the little things. Because if you're trying to find, at least in my mind, if you're trying to find that next Big one, perfect Yeah, thing. big something. You might be waiting a long time. and But all the little things start to mount up, and they all have a fascinating story because they're all, they're all a window into an event. And if you get enough windows, you start to see the picture. And uh, I like that. So I, I can't really ever narrow down too many single things because it is all kinds of blur together into pretty solid good time. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. awesome. But. That's awesome.
You know, <laughs> I'll change it up a little bit. We were we were talking earlier. I had the good fortune to hear you present on a number of occasions, and uh, one presentation I recall uh, that our listeners might enjoy some stories from her. Um, this will be a dramatic turn from where Okay. <laughs> it's like, how did he go there? Um, kind of the the myths, the ghost town, the what once was sort of stuff. Well, when you talked, I think the last time we was with us in person, you talked about the graveyard tours. The, the uh, cemeteries and lost villages and... Maybe which, it was the other which, guy. Which, yeah, I was going to say, because I don't remember. It <laughs> might be another guy. I don't remember no, what talking about. Well, you, you had, it was kind of myth versus... I did that talk with for TU that one yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. And we talked about, they were kind of uh, pseudo-archaeology. You know, kind of like when you get on Ancient Aliens. I mean, that's a, that, I get a lot of that. Well, well what do you think Kind of, of the cable TV area. <laughs> exactly. It's like, how do you think they built those pyramids? Like, well, either we had a, you know, this, or it's got to be aliens, guys. It's got to be. But... Um, we're talking about like in Michigan. There's a lot of um, well, there's several of permanent, permanent, in you know they're just lightly in the culture of myths. And a lot of them came down to with you know it was early early 20th century, and they were you know copper tablets with you know biblical stuff on them and Phoenicians and all this crazy stuff. Dirk Pitt stuff. Yeah, and people yeah, and people were buying into it. And of course, as you come to figure out, they were making them as fast as they were finding them. And so there's a lot of different stories like that, you know. Is that 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 that's the that was the talk we were we were on, um, you know. That's for every every bona fide archaeological fact. Everybody seems to really rather be on board with the thing that's least likely to be possible. The opposite of yeah, Occam's Razor. I mean, like there's Phoenicians <laughs> all over Southern Michigan and things like that. Um, you know, for you know, and the word gets kind of foggy is because you you blend fact and fiction. You know, we do know that the Vikings were here in in the Northeast, you know, up in, you know, wherever. Well, they were in Greenland, and we know that we had in Newfoundland, Lonzo Meadows, and all that. They were they had they had established a, for lack of a better term, a colony, but their own, you know, tellings of that, uh, pretty much say, well, we didn't stay long because we didn't get along with the Indians, and they left, and then they stayed in Greenland for several hundred years, and then the environment changed, and you know. Iceland was the stronghold. So the, the problem with that is is that it sets the precedence that, well, well, the Vikings did it. Well, why not the Phoenicians? Why not the Egyptians? Why not everybody else? And, and you know, being that if nothing else, this country has an awesome sense of humor when it comes to playing pranks. So, <laughs> you know, for, for ever since we got this idea that, well, there, you know, I mean, the Viking idea had been around a long time. But people started making up Phoenician stories and people made up Egyptian stories. People made up Welsh stories. People made up. I mean, when uh, Lewis and Clark went west, one of their missions was to stop with the Mandan because some of the Mandan language has some similarities to the Welsh language. So Thomas Jefferson, hey, check this out. See what? if there's anything. While you're in the neighborhood. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> see if there's anything to that. And it just happens to be coincidental, but people hang on to that. Um, it's hard to. It's hard to separate that sometimes and some people get really upset when you break down that well this has always been the truth like but let's break down the lie there's one out in, in in carlsbad new mexico where i was at and if you get out in the desert around carlsbad you'll find these stacked stone pillars usually three four feet high 
and they're added to local limestone and dolomite, and they're kind of roughly shaped, and they're just just a pillar. Okay. And the locals legend came up. Oh well, this was the the, the Spaniards, the early conquistadors, and they were marking this for their paths across here. Well, they're kind of random. They don't really line up. <laughs> and um, you know, as you get out there, that was big sheep herding country. And you get around sheep camps, sheep herders were you know, bored. So they were knocking out rocks and stacking rocks all over the place. And and I'm like, well, what I think these, they're, what they, I've always end up being, what I end up determining, where we're, we call them stone shepherds. Because sheep, as we all know, aren't very bright. So, you know, you only have you and a couple other guys, but you want to keep your sheep there. So you stack those rocks up and they see that silhouette. Well, we can't go over there because there's something there that might get us. But they weren't anything to do with the Spanish. And like, well, why don't you think they're with the Spanish? I'm like, because the Spanish tell you, the conquistadors talk about being deathly afraid of the Indians. And they didn't leave the valley <laughs> because the Indians rubbed them out every time. So <laughs> this is kind of outside their comfort zone. <laughs> I go, it makes more sense because we got sheep stuff everywhere. Sure. You know? So, so, but people persisted like, well, you, you know, you, you know, you don't know everything. I'm like, well, I'm not saying that I do, <laughs> but I'm saying that it makes more sense that it's this than that. So legends persist. And, those stone tablets, when I did that talk, what got me on that trail was right down at, well, in the Mason Griffith track where the South Branch comes into, mm -hmm. into the main branch. There, back in the early 20th century, there was supposed to be a mound there, a burial mound, and in that burial mound, came one of these tablets came out of that. Well, I saw on our map, oh, burial mound, and we have this new satellite imagery using laser, lasers, that gives me a really defined, I can really see what's mm -hmm. on the ground, just to topography. And I thought, man, this would be great. We got a, I got a burial mound here. And then I started poking into it. And as soon as I saw that copper tablet, you know, it didn't have a picture. I'm like, well, it could be because we have a lot of copper in the Great Lakes and all. But then it came up with some biblical scene, and I'm like, wow, that's, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? And as I got into it, the whole kind of thing unraveled, and the whole cast of characters came out, and it's well known about these tablets and all that. So there's a lot of that, though, persists across. Well, and I think nowadays it really persists because you have shows like Ancient Aliens and all this other stuff that yeah. takes these... In search of. <laughs> right, yeah, and there's, there's some... They're just plausible enough where you can say, oh, yeah, there's this is surrounded by some actual events. Oh. But then it goes off somewhere. Well, to your point, humans are compelled to grasp onto the fascinating. Well, we want to. I mean, you know, what's a world like, without wonder? It's like the Alex Files <laughs> thing. I want to believe. Yes. <laughs> well, well, connection to the past or, you know, I mean, it's something elemental. You, you know, you've got to... You want to feel there's something behind you more than just air. Exactly. Like, well, when, it's... when we moved here, there was a pile of rocks out there about where Valenian Shed is now. Yeah. And I asked the lady we bought the place from what what that was, and she said, "Well, I don't know." And I figured she wasn't telling me. So there had to be something under that something. pile of rocks. <laughs> so, you know, the long short story is we moved a pile of rocks and went a damn thing down there. <laughs> <laughs> there was no fireplace grate underneath there. Interestingly, <laughs> a pile no, of rocks. I, I had fabricated all kinds of explanations. You know, there was a well full of, uh, you know. Yeah, all sorts of gold and yeah, jewels. Uh, you know, and <laughs> copper tablets. Yeah. Copper tablets. Copper tablets. Next on, on our family place back in Pennsylvania, there, you know, of course, I was just a kid starting out, in, you know, in college and archaeology and, you know, everything was, you know, you know and on, like I said, there's big sites on, on our family farm and all along the Susquehanna. There was two big mounds on the neighboring, on the ridge overlooking the river. And I had read some stuff about mounds and burials and, 
And I go to my grandfather, I'm like, hey, we need to go over there and check that out. He's like, well, we could, but odds are, you know, and I, he never felt like, he's like, it could be a burial mound where someone could have buried a couple of mules in there. And I thought, I wonder if he buried a couple of mules in there. <laughs> so I, I've never gone, I've never, hey, like, and there's, a, there's a whole lot of that kind of stuff out there. I'm like, that could be a burial mound. Come on, could have just buried a couple or... of mules in there. You know? so, and that conversation comes up in my mind, like, copper duck could be couple mules buried there with those copper tablets so. that's hilarious the but, copper mule yeah the copper mule <laughs> that's awesome but yeah but everywhere i've been there's always there's there's like i said out in the southwest it's always lost spanish gold and there's something to do with apaches and silver and things like that so they, everybody has their their stories you know that they like are those mounds associated with a particular tribe of native americans or well that's no, it's associated war with periods of time. Okay. I mean, you know, human... Because we have a lot through central Indiana. <laughs> we do, and it, it is, it's really it's really an a, a eastern... Well, it's a, it's a thing. I mean, even, okay. our, even in Europe, we have burial mounds. Oh, okay. But, um, so people are, you know, even today, we're pretty transitory. People move around. You're from Indiana, I'm from Pennsylvania. Sure. By Pennsylvania by way of El Paso, Texas, and... And so it's really the same case in the past. So the people that are living here when our first European ancestors show up are not necessarily the people that were living here 4,000 years ago. And so people move for different, well, people move for different reasons. I mean, even into the colonial period, we have a lot of dispersal because as Europeans are moving into the East Coast, they're displacing people who are moving West, who are displacing people and moving West. Uh, the best case in point are like, the Lakota and Dakota Sioux, they were all Great Lakes tribes in the beginning, yes. but they got pushed west. And I'm like, well, you know, okay, we'll go do this. They're place. really west. Yeah, we're really west now. And, they, <laughs> and now we, we, when we think of plains, we think of sitting below on the plains. Well, right. at some point in time, they were related to Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Great Lakes. Um, so, and in like the Anishinaabe people, which would be the Potawatomi and the Ojibwe and, and the Ottawa, their own stories bring them from the east, migrating into the Great Lakes region. There, there, there are seven prophecies and all that. Um, so when we look at different periods of time, they come with this set of attributes, and the burial mounds are part of that. Okay. Late. And really what that comes a part of, and we see it everywhere, these things, is as people get more stabilized within their environment, you know, that means they, they, they mean they really understand what's going on. The environment has stabilized. That's more, imp more important to, to point that out. So you get this, you know, flat spot in environmental change, and everybody adapts to that. And at that point in time, they're kind of at a maximum efficiency for what they can harvest. We can grow this. We can get that. We can fish here. We can hunt there. And populations grow. And people have a lot of extra, you know. And at that point in time, when people are well-fed and populations grow, you start seeing an investment in monumental kind of things, uh, ritualized, you know, earthworks, palisaded villages, uh, artwork starts to become more elaborate. We, you know, you hear about the hope well and all. Uh, you start seeing that. And it's just really a reflection of people are doing well. And because we have time... More time to pursue other we things. We can do that. And because we're, because we're all healthy and well-fed and we have good supplies, we can come together as a group to do these bigger projects. I mean, you get down to, you know, St. Louis and I and Cahokia, you know, the big, big earth mounds and all that. Okay. You know, pyramids of South America, those are collective efforts. And people who are doing well do collective efforts. People who are kind of struggling, you know, or if it's not a sure thing, 
No, we stay small and disconnect it. Kind of minimal. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> very, very feng shui. So, <laughs> so. Nice. But. Nice. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's, I mean, we can go on. You get, you get, uh, you know, archaeologists, we like, we like to talk about these things and different theories and different ideas. And, you know, of course, we spend a lot of time walking around. There's just a new article out about health saying that people who walk and do a lot of cardio are more creative. Archaeologists walk miles and miles. You know, so we have a lot of time to really think about stuff. And you get a table full of us and in a, in a couple cases of beer and the conversation is just... And by the time we're done, we got it all sorted out. We've solved every problem. Got it all done. Oh, yeah, we know it. That's got to be what it Maybe is. Maybe we need to record one of those sessions. Oh, my gosh. Been, <laughs> <laughs> highly edited. <laughs> back, back to aliens and copper. Oh, paper. right. Someone's got to throw it at it. But what if? But what if? <laughs> so it gets That's pretty great. salty every once in a while. <laughs> but they get, they get into, but yeah, the, the conversation, we kind of tie these things in. And once you start to realize, and I see this having, you know, like I said, started off in Pennsylvania and been to the Southwest and all parts in between. So we have these, indiv- you know, we identify, we like, you know, because we have to, we got to organize. So we, we, we like, this is this group and this is that group and what's different. But what we really, what I really see and what really comes out of this conversation is how much of this is actually the same. And really the differences are really, they really are just kind of, you know, well, this looks different because this is the materials they have to work with here. So they're making the same stuff, but it looks like from that area. So people are sharing common technologies. There's they're clearly sharing a lot of similar ideologies on thing, a very a, a perspective, a worldview um, that's very unique to the Americas, and you can still have to see that. And I really, I really, I really get kind of neat because we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's different about people, and in the long run, what we like. Well, we have a whole lot more common ground than we have differences sure you know and really the difference do come down to just being something as simple as well it looks a little different and that's pretty powerful when you start seeing especially when you can see that all the way back and when you really want to make that big leap you can start looking to europe and asia and everything yeah we're doing a whole lot of course there's only you know we've been on a camping trip for hundreds of thousands of years (laughs) there's only so many ways you can do a camping trip and you know (laughs) that's what it boils down to it's like well there's only so many ways you can do this kind of perfected it yeah we got it we got it really good you know we're really good at it we styled it in (laughs) yeah it's finite now so but it's kind of a fascinating it gives you you know it's a fascinating eye-opening thing when you start making those bigger connections to what's going on in the world you know how some things how some things change. We always joke about how history repeats itself, but it it does. You know, oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> I think it, it's cool because it it you know everything we've we've spoken about it all cycles back to what you said initially. You know, what was that Dave's guy's day like? Yeah, what was his <laughs> day like? I mean, and when you look at it, I mean, what was it like? I mean, you know, no matter when or where, as a human being, we all still have the same basic needs. We need to eat, we need to drink, we need to make babies, we need to have a nice place to live, we need we need these things. So everywhere at our time. Maslow. Yeah. And now so but really when you get down to it, it's like, well, I need these things. So what what do I have here that's gonna fill those needs, fulfill those needs? And then it takes on that that flavor, you know. And it's with the like when no matter where I've been, you know, especially when you get to areas like like, you know, we, we really are blessed to live in this area. But, you know, because of, like I said, resource-rich. There's so many different things. If, if you're keyed into it, you can, you know, slide from season to season and never go hungry, you know. 
And uh, when you go all the way back, you know, I can look at the archaeological record like, well, we've pretty much been doing the same things here, <clears throat> you know, thousands and thousands of years. We're still picking the same berries, still picking the same mushrooms, eating the same fish, you know, tying into the same seasons of when the, when do we fish for whitefish, when do we go for, you know, you know, whatever's migrating, whatever's moving, <laughs> very specific times. Um, and so it's, it's that, there's continuity in it, you know. But you have to be impressed. I mean, we get all impressed nowadays because, you know, everything, you know, there's more technology in my cell phone than it, would, it took to put a guy in the moon. Well, sure. You know, but our ancestors were out there insanely successful with really just sticks and stones. Yeah. You know, and that just, I mean, I, I'd like to plop a kid out from, you know, with all the degrees out in the middle of the woods today and say, you know, that would be a real, that'd be really a Survivor TV show. I'm going to put you 10 people on this island and we're just going to come back in a year. Good luck. Whoever's yeah. alive wins. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? So, you know? No cameras. Yeah, no really cameras. No drama. <laughs> just just going to check back in Sort on you. it out, guys. You know? so, <coughs> Roanoke, too. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, well, like, you did good. You know, I don't want to know how you did it, though. <laughs> so, but that yeah, would be fun. Get your recipe for squirrel stew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Awesome. Jim, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to join us and well, thanks for having me. Guys. Enlighten our audience and add value to our lives. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's very generous. <laughs> Absolutely. You've been, uh, you know, you've been the kickoff hot stove guy for what? Three, four, four years. years now. Oh. I think this is the fourth. You did all third. Three. Third season. I'm aware of. <laughs> since, since we were at War, or, uh, yeah, Warbler. Yeah. So, I enjoy uh, it. I appreciate like, that. You're always, uh, well, I appreciate you guys being interested. It's always, in, it's always, it's a mutual thing. I mean, it. I've always noticed that presentation is a whole lot better when the people who are there are into it. <laughs> you know? right. So, I mean, you really when 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 there's being like when you force it on kids, like oh, like I can feel that. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I yeah. think yeah. yeah. the sneaky learning is always the fun yeah. learning. Yeah. Hey, I will ask you a question. Um, I think at, at one point in time, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, there were a couple of projects going where there was a, maybe the opportunity for a small group of private citizens to join as volunteers to assist with any of your projects? Yes, and so there's still that ongoing opportunity. And so, you know, we're not out of the woods yet with the pandemic, but we're getting there. There's a lot of hope on the horizon. Oh, right on. And, but, you know, the groovy part about working in the woods are, and doing what I do, you can do, I, people can volunteer and we can safely social distance and still get a lot done. And here, if, if people are interested in volunteering, what I offer right now, across the Huron-Manistee National Forest, we have about 3,000 documented archaeological sites. And there's plenty that aren't documented that we're, we're catching up on. The lion's share of them are late, well, post-1860 up to the early 20th century, and they're, you know, logging-related or homestead-related. Okay. And that I'm focusing on right now. And they're not, the, the thing is they've been documented, but they were never evaluated for, are they significant? So right now I'm trying to, and my, uh, we, I have another archaeologist who works with me on, out of the Cadillac office for the Manistee side of the forest, and we're trying to inventory these and update our records. So, you know, of all these, what are important? What do we need to focus on? 
So we started on the low-hanging fruit with this, really these logging and, and homesteading sites. And the history is well-documented. The sites are clearly, everybody here that's listening in northern Michigan or anywhere east of the Mississippi will know what I'm talking about because you get out in the woods and there's a hole in the ground. Here's a couple cans and that's these, these sites. Um, so I usually, I, I'm looking for volunteers because we get out, um, we do a little metal detecting. We're just trying to see what's left. Is there anything intact, anything we don't know, anything that would be significant, we try to collect it now so it's you know, out there. Um, some of the sites, things have been documented that while they're older, they're just older trash dumps from the 50s and 60s. This has been a recreational area for a long oh, time. The hole in the ground and 10 cans sounds like Bald Hill Road. It, it is. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've, 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 I've moved a lot of 50-year-old beer cans out of the forest, you know. And so there's an opportunity for participating with the archaeology. And my over my, my long-term goal is to get through these historic sites and then turn around and start dealing with the 1837 and earlier sites that oh, we wow. have across the forest. Okay. And we have a lot of prehistoric sites. We have this, you know, this was big in the colonial period, big in the fur trade period. Um, the other year we did find in an old beaver dam. It was on a historic site, a homestead from the early, late 1800s, early 20th century. Uh, but in the old Beaver Dam, you know, off of south on Big Creek, um, south of Mayo on the Big okay. Creek, there was a musket ball found in there. And it would have been about a 60 caliber musket ball. Because when back in the early fur trade, they didn't trap beaver like we do now. They hunted beaver. So they would shoot beaver. They would club beaver. And I could always picture guys standing there in this beaver pond in the wintertime fumbling around, because I shoot a lot of black powder, fumbling around in his possible's bag and drop that, because I've dropped them. And once you drop them, especially okay. if there's 18 inches of snow, ice, and water, that's where it stayed for however long. So <laughs> we have, yeah, we have evidence. We have historic accounts of people there. So once I get through the homesteads and the logging and stuff, I want to start focusing on that. And so I try to get some of the more interesting sites. I like to get volunteers out there, and they can see it, participate in metal detecting, see what we're seeing. And, you know, as time goes by, we'll get into the older and more interesting stuff. But last year, because of the pandemic, you know, I was by myself. I had my assistant, which she worked with me, but we didn't have anything else going on. So we rolled through about 300 sites. Oh, wow. But this year, and I'm way, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly ahead of a project load for what we do for timber and all. So I thought, well, I can dial it back and spend time on these sites. So if people are interested in volunteering, they can reach out to me at the Forest Service or come into the Forest Service, and I will hand you the volunteer forms that you can fill out and sign it, and then I'll put everybody on a mailing list and let them know when we're doing oh, stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And so we have that So just pre-certify yourself and get all the documents Ex done, and then as exactly. work becomes available. Right, and I I have I talked with my current volunteers, and, you know, because I... As we got more into this, you know, well, you get, you know, it's all about relationships. And I really have some great volunteers, a small group that, you know, have stayed the course and get okay. out there and, and they enjoy doing it and I enjoy their company. And so without that, you kind of feel that loss. So I'm like, you know, I think we can, I put it out to them. I'm like, you know, I really think if it, it was okay with you guys and you're comfortable, you know, we can do this. And they're like, yes, we can do this. We can always stay away from each other all day. I'm like, well, that's great. You know, whatever everybody's comfortable with, mm -hmm. I can work with that. And there's also a lot of opportunity. What this side of the world needs there's a group over towards manistee that do it was just kind of a grassroots group and they get out there and they start picking up all these dumps and i find these you know old dumps of old beer cans and and, and of course this was like i said there's always been a tourist recre recreation cottage area so people had all their cabins like the luzerne area and all that the cabins are gone they've been gone for 
30, 40, 50 years maybe. But there was a dump where everybody took their stuff. So, man, there's a pile of stuff. But it's not an archaeological site. It's just a dump. So when I find those, I've been, you know, we usually try to get together in the Forest Service and we clean them up. But I would love to get a volunteer group and I can give them a whole list of stuff. And, of course, if you just feel that you need an old, you know, mayonnaise jar, take it with you. As long as it's not in my forest anymore. <laughs> Your own artifacts. Exactly. Help me clean this up. Special yeah, Special <laughs> get this dump out of my woods site. But um, so we, we always see a marketing opportunity here, Jim. There you go. I mean, I, you too can have a piece of the you know, the past there. But for uh, for our that now that's just because they're dumps. Our actual archaeological sites they, they are protected and all. So we, we do take care of them. Yeah, I don't want anybody thinking you can pick yeah, up stuff. No souvenirs there. No souvenir hunting. You know. But you know anything that I say that's garbage. That's yours. <laughs> okay. So so again, just um, if we do have folks that are interested, it, you're. Do you I mean, go to a web address or just you can you can find me at you know james.ren at usda.gov. That's my email address. There you go. You can email me and I will send you the forms electronically and you can do your part and email them back to me and I'll have my boss sign them and we're good to go. That's awesome. If if, if you're not comfortable with the technology, you can swing by to Mayo office and let them know I sent you and you're looking for a volunteer form because you want to volunteer with the Heritage program, and they will give it to you, and we'll do the same thing. Right on. So, oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And I'd love, I'd love to I have. Hope, I hope people. we get some folks out as a function. It's we have an amazingly yeah. uh, proactive group of listeners. So, yep. And if people just want to go out and see what's out there, we could always. I, I think I told you guys about my Cato Earthworks over near Glenny. It's a palisaded Indian village from. We have a a radiocarbon date from the middle 1400s, 1450. But it was, uh, you know, at that point in time, all over the Northeast, people were building forts around their villages. Okay. So, but that's a, one of the, if not, in my opinion, the great greatest site I've got on this side oh, of the forest. Oh, that's awesome. And, I, you know, so people want to go out and see that. As the weather gets nicer, we can make a day and take people out and show them stuff. And, or if they want to see something. Or if you have any questions or you're curious about something, give me a call. I'm always glad to talk and look at stuff and see stuff or come out and see your stuff. Right so. on. So... Um, window-wise, are we? Is this kind of a Memorial Day, Labor Day thing for the for the masses, if you will? Well, I think it's you know it's really what you're into. I mean, you know, I mean, well, right. The, the weather, the where's weather, your the weather's nicer. Okay. Yeah, we're yeah. I'm I'm I run from about the time I can see the ground till well November fifteenth. You know, because okay. either we have snow by then or it's deer season and my thoughts turn to other things. There you go. <laughs> so, um, so I, we really, you know, but we're pretty, fly, I'm, I am very flexible throughout the season, you know, okay. and, uh, and work with people and, you know, because we have some challenging weather here and sometimes my volunteers, you know, volunteers work for volunteer wages, you know. <laughs> so, so if they say, you know, Jim, it's really hot and there's a lot of mosquitoes, we're not going to do this today. I'm like, okay. Or I only want to do this for an hour. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we're, I'm very flexible with everybody's schedule. That's awesome. You know, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, good stuff, Jim. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. And Be safe while you're out and about. Well, there we go. That puts a cap on the first episode of the Hot Stove Talks for uh, this season. Uh, just to set expectations, uh, check back with us every couple of weeks. We'll download a new episode uh, that'll take us up into the spring and uh, look forward to our traditional podcast at Season Oakers. So thanks again for listening. Take care. And as always, mind your backcast. <laughs>